would say when it comes to like um, experiencing God with us or God with me in uh, 2020, I think about times this year when I experienced um, anxiety or loneliness or was frustrated, um, whether the circumstances, uh, anxiety from not knowing what's going to happen at work or um, just loneliness from not being able to see that many people this year because of COVID. Um, I just feel like God is telling me and reminding me of, you know, how far he's brought me along and experiences that I've went through. He's um, just constantly telling me that um, just to look back, um, sit still, just remember the things that I've brought you through and I will bring you through that uh, as well. And things that bring me peace, uh, I just think about uh, the book of John when they talk about uh, peace I leave with you. I do not give as the world gives, but don't let your heart be troubled. And uh, I hold on to that tightly and just reading scripture, just like First uh, Peter 5 through 7 when it talks about uh, anxiety, just working through those anxieties and um, holding tightly to the people around you that God's placed in your life um, and just talking through those things with those people. Well, can we thank Ryan for sharing his story with us? Thank you, Ryan. Great window into this season of God with us. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas to all of you in this room. Merry Christmas to those joining online. 2020, in the midst of everything we've been going through, it cannot stop this reality this week, right? The light of the world has still come. We light the candles, we sing the songs, we open God's Word, we read the Scriptures, and we rejoice together because the God who made the world and everything in it has come in Jesus for us. And so Jesus' church is not giving up on Christmas, even in 2020. And so, so grateful you're here to be a part of it. We've been looking at the Advent themes all through the month. And as we've been doing so, we've been reflecting on this reality, Jesus' prayer in, in the Gospels, where we call it the Lord's Prayer, where he said, you know, Lord, I want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, I talked a few weeks ago about how Jesus was praying for up there to come down here. Well, one of the ways up there comes down here is God's people moving out and serving and blessing those in need during this time of year. So I want to give you some windows into how up there is coming down here through all of you and what you've been doing. Look at these pictures. So three weeks ago, several of you were gathering in the, can we put the first slide up with a picture of the notes there? So we were writing notes to inmates, right? It was over a hundred letters to inmates in Boone County, in the Boone County Jail, just to encourage them just to give them a word of hope and encouragement. And then two weeks ago, we gathered a bunch of supplies, like specifically winter clothing for School 63, our partnership there on the west side. And the kids in School 63, Marion County has given those kids permission to stay in school, in that school, because they recognize this, those kids are a lot safer and well cared for in the school than they are at home on their own. And so we've been able to help provide supplies, and all of you were a part of that, giving like winter coats and hats and gloves and all that. And then last week, we had a toy and clothing drive for Parent Life. Here's some pictures of some of you that were down there serving and helping. 
uh, I think that's the Fords, uh, Derek Ford up there, and then it's Cynthia Maddox, and then the Strickland girls. Like they've served a meal when they've provided Parent Life as a ministry to single parents in partnership with Youth for Christ City Life. And they provided a meal, and they provided toys, and all kinds of supplies to the parents. And then today, the picture you probably saw when you walked in the doors, we're partnering to help the refugees in our city through Migros Aid. And so we're doing refugee baskets. Thank you for those of you who were dropped those off. You still have until Wednesday if you weren't able to get your baskets. I think we've still got a few that can be claimed. You can go to eaglechurch.com Christmas and sign up for that and bring those by before Wednesday. But all those supplies are going to go down and help a large group of people who have transitioned from their homeland here and are trying to kind of settle in and find a new way. And we're partnered with Migros Aid Indy. But all of that church is to say, do you see how like Jesus' people who are bringing his light and his hope and his joy through tangible acts of service, that's how, part, how up there comes down here. Because one of the things of Advent, the, the muscles we work are, we proclaim that God promised the Messiah would come and he came. We remember that in Advent. And the other thing we remember is this. We look ahead and say, he came once, he promised he'd come and he came. Guess what? He's going to come again. Because this, the way things are right now, is not the way they're always going to be. Current is not eternal. And in Advent, we take one eye, we look back, and one eye, we look ahead, and we say, we remember that one day, he's going to set all that's wrong right. And Advent is the time. That's why we light these candles. And that's why we remember that Christ has come, and he's going to come again. And we move out, and we serve in the needs of our community. It's one way we work those muscles, and we spread his light and his hope. So thank you so much for your generosity on behalf of all the families and individuals and ministries that have been blessed through your giving this way. I hope it's been a, I think for many of you have talked about just the joy of being a part of that and, and being able to give in that way. And so this morning, we're going to build on the storyline as we head into this Christmas week, and I've invited a couple of very special helpers to the stage. Will you put your hands together and welcome Poppy and Sophie Strickland to the stage, please? And they're going to come and help read the scripture for this morning. So would you stand together for the reading of God's Word? It's going to come out of Luke chapter 1. You can follow along on the screens here. Thank you, young ladies. You look beautiful today. Merry Christmas to both of you. A reading from the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule Jacob's house forever with no end ever to his kingdom Good job, Mary said to the angel but how I've never slept with a man the angel answered the Holy Spirit will come upon you the power of the highest hover over you therefore the child you bring to birth will be called holy son of God and did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son old as she is everyone called her barren and here, she is six months pregnant. Nothing you see is impossible with God. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid ready to serve. 
Let it be with me, just as you say. The angel left her. Amen. Can we give a round of applause for our readers? Thank you so much, girls. Merry Christmas to you. You may be seated. Well, you heard in the Advent reading earlier, uh, the Whitakers, Matt and Beth, came and read the section of Mary's song of response on the heels of what the Strickland girls just read, and it's embodied in Luke chapter 1. And today, what I want us to do is step into this story, and I want us to look at three ways Mary responded to this unbelievable interruption in her life. Has anybody felt like perhaps there's been some interruptions inserted in life over this past year? And you had all kinds of plans, and you had all kinds of, uh, you know, ideas about how things are going to unfold, and then, you know, some other things have occurred, and it's been a constant adjustment. Mary is in this place, and I want us to see how her response of faith give us a window into what maybe God's calling us for this Christmas week. Context for Mary is she was most likely a teenage girl. Scholars believe probably somewhere between 15 and 18 at the time of this dialogue. She's engaged. That's not uncommon for that day and age. It would be very disturbing for us dads in this day and age. I get it. Yeah, I have a daughter with, you know, two daughters. I'm like, yeah, no, 15, 18, way too young in our world this way. But back in first century Palestine, that would have been normal. Been very important for them to be married off and having kids by the time they turn 20. So Mary, probably between 15 and 18, and she's engaged to this man named Joseph, and she's planning a wedding. Now, some of you have been in wedding planning mode. How's that going with COVID wedding planning? Isn't that a good time? That's super fun, isn't it? Where it's just, you know, and as difficult as it is in COVID wedding planning, Mary's got a whole new level of interruption. An angel of the Lord comes to her and says, I need you to set aside your wedding plans because you're going to have a baby. And by the way, you haven't slept with anyone. I know that. Everyone else doesn't know that, but you and me know that. So picture how that's going to go in wedding planning when you go and talk to your groom-to-be. <laughs> it's going to be difficult, right? It's going to be, this is the setup for the dialogue. So I want you to see the translation in NLT. The girls read out of the message translation. NLT says in verse 29, Luke 1:29 says this, Mary's response, confused and disturbed. Confused and disturbed. Has anybody had into those encounters with God in your own faith journey where if you were honest, your response was, I'm just confused, Lord, and I'm quite disturbed about this, Lord. Well, that's Mary. Confused and disturbed. And then the next phrase in the New Living Translation says, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. So here's our first window into Mary's response. First of three we're going to look at today. Mary responds thoughtfully. Notice Mary doesn't respond with this Oh, it's so great. An angel's talking to me. I'm so excited, Lord. What do you got planned for me? Let's go. That's not how it goes. She responds with, wait, what? And she's confused. And she's disturbed. And, and, and she says, she's going to think this through. Now, maybe some of you grew up in faith traditions where you weren't encouraged to think things through when it comes to faith. Maybe some of you grew up in church circles where it's like, don't ask, don't doubt, don't question, just believe. Well, that might be some faith traditions, but that's not biblical faith. That's not Advent faith. That's not Jesus faith. That's not Mary faith. The biblical faith, the invitation God's look for is, actually, we're supposed to apply thoughtful reasoning. We're supposed to engage our minds and think through what it is God is asking of us. You don't just 
stop thinking, check your brain, and just believe, just kind of a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith that's grounded in substance and the reality of the eternal God coming in Christ. The real Holy Spirit is really going to conceive a real child in this womb, and he'll really be born. This is true. This is data. This is fact. We've got to engage thoughtfully in the Christmas story. We don't just treat it as some like child fairy tale type story. We think about this with Mary, and there will be times in our own faith journey where perhaps the Lord interrupts our plans, and our response might be like Mary's, confused and disturbed. And if you're there now in Christmas 2020, I want to encourage you, follow her footsteps and go, move from the confused, disturbed, move right into engage your mind, thoughtfully reason, think this through, ask questions, express your doubts. It's an important part of grasping the kind of faith that God is after. Elton Trueblood, you don't have this quote in your notes, and I don't think they have it on the screen either. I found it later this week. Elton Trueblood, he was chaplain at Stanford and Harvard. Can you imagine the kind of dialogues that chaplain had to have at Stanford and Harvard through a good section of the 1900s? And he was a pastor for many years. He said this, there are three areas that must be cultivated if any faith is to be a living faith. Hear this, the inner life of devotion, hear the second one, the intellectual life of rational thought and the outer life of human service. Mary's anchored on that second one right here in the opening part. She's the intellectual life of rational thought. She's rationally, she's engaging her mind, she's wrestling with questions, she's thinking it through. And I think this is an important part for the Christmas week, that we don't just quickly dismiss how outside of the box the entry point of this story is. Confused, disturbed, responding thoughtfully is Mary's first move. And now, stay with me and look in your, if you have your Bibles open, look how it moves from verse 29 to verse 34 when she says, how can this be? And then she moves to verse 38, may it be to me as you have said. Do you see the progression? Verse 29, she's confused. Verse 34, she's saying, she's questioning. It's like, how can this be? Kind of wrestling with it, thinking it through. And she gets to verse 38, may it be to me as you have said. From that, I wrote, Mary responds gradually. Do you see the gradual and progressive nature of her response? Following Jesus, the picture is always that Jesus' invitation is an all-in invitation. Like the thought that you can follow Jesus kind of half in, half out, that's not a picture you get of Jesus. You're either all in or all out. Now here, the, the journey to all in is gradual though. For most of us, it's not like an immediate response. Many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. I think it's the second most read piece of Christian literature in the world besides the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote it in the 1600s, and he was a pastor over in London. He turned into an author, and he wrote this allegory about the Christian life called The Pilgrim's Progress. Well, later in his life, they were asking him about his own journey to faith, and John Bunyan described his journey to all-in point of surrender was, he said this, it was 18 months of, quote, great agony and depression before breaking through and receiving God's love and grace. You see that? 18 months, a year and a half of a pretty dark and difficult time, great agony and depression before the breakthrough came of love and grace. That's part of some of your stories, perhaps. Maybe it's not 18 months. Maybe it's 18 years. But then there's also the story in Acts 16 of the Philippian jailer. And the backdrop of that story is he hears the gospel for the first 
time, and he responds, and his whole household gets baptized the same day. So you've got John Bunyan, 18 months of a winding journey through darkness and depression before the light breaks in, and you've got Philippian jailer that's immediate, like right there in the moment. Here's the gospel when the light breaks in. That's part of the spectrum of responses to the Christmas story, to this amazing invitation that God has come for us. And for some of you, that's your story. Some of you are more John Bunyan, and it's gradual and progressive. And some of you are more instantaneous. You can remember the time when you really, for the first time, grasped the gospel, and it just clicked, and there was immediate, went from this to this, and all in you go. And Mary is somewhere in between. It's not 18 months for her. It's not immediate for her. I think Mary's a profile that's probably more widely spread for us. Like it's a, More often than not, we're kind of like Mary. We're like You know, everybody's journey to all in, kind of at a different pace and a different route, different backgrounds, different circumstances. We all, we're all headed the same direction with Jesus at the center, but how we get there is this winding road. And some of it's John Bunyan-like, and some of it's Philippian Jailer-like, but for most of us, it's Mary-like. It's gradual. It's two steps forward, one back. It's where you feel like you made some progress and then you kind of stalled out for a while or you kind of took a detour over here and then you came back and, right? It's that. It's that whole journey. It's gradual. It's from verse 29 to 34 to 38. It's not the angel speaks and boom, you're all in. No, it's, it's a process. And I like what Timothy Keller says. I did put this quote in your notes. Keller said it this way. This can be a very important space to occupy, referring to Mary's gradual process at least for a time. Some people will make no move toward Jesus at all unless it all comes together for them, rationally, emotionally, and personally. Do you follow that? So some, and maybe this is part of your story, you're hesitant to take a step towards Jesus until you get like all of the, all the boxes checked. You get like all the dominoes aligned how you want. And when you get all of those rationally, thoughtfully, emotionally, experientially, like you get them all lined up like, okay, then you're going to go. And what Keller suggests, that's really not, that's not for the most part how most of our faith's going to work. It's going to be like this. Stay with the quote here. It says, for them, it's either rapturous joy in God or nothing at all. But sometimes you can only do what Mary does. Just submit and trust despite the fears and reservations. And that gives you a foothold for moving forward. And I wonder this morning if somebody, they just need a foothold for moving forward right here, Christmas 2020. And here's your foothold. With trust and confidence in who God said he was and what he said he would do, even despite all the fears, all the uncertainty, all the unknowns, you just join Mary with one little gradual step. From verse 29, maybe this morning, just get to 34. And then from that step, you eventually get to 38. You see that? It's this gradual. It's like one time. And if, and if you've gone through a season where you feel like you've taken a step back, no better week than Christmas week to say, okay, might have been a step back over the last few months. Step forward this week. Just, just take a foot. The foothold is this. You know who Jesus is. You know this story. You know what he's done. He's come for you. He's come for me. Just use that as a foothold and then take a step this week. And it's gradual. Just one step. Why not this week? Christmas week of all weeks, Right? So you see how Mary goes from, it's a thoughtful response. She responds, she's not checking her brain at the door. She's not just blind faith. No, she's engaging. She's wrestling with this. She's asking questions. She brings forth her doubt. 
Which that's why around here we want to create environments like we've got this class called Alpha that we offer. You know, a big part of Alpha is it's a safe place for you to come, bring your questions, express your doubt. Yes, when you're part of life groups, we try to create an environment where the life groups can question and doubt and wrestle with stuff. And when we have discipleship classes or any other interactions around here, we want it to be a forum. And we try to even have our Sunday services. And I and, I and other teachers, we try to develop the message in such a way that we apply our minds and we reason and we engage thoughtfully with what God has said here. Because there's some really difficult and mysterious things revealed here. It's not easy to put all the pieces together. And it's okay to be honest about that. And God's big enough to handle those questions and our doubts. And I think it's really important for those of you who are younger and listening now. I want you to know that in all your stages of journey of growth and development, you bring your questions to God. Jesus is big enough for them. Don't bury them. Don't think you can't ask them. Don't think you can't doubt. Part of your faith getting forged is expressing them and wrestling through them. And in that, there's some things that are deepened. And it'll be gradual for most of us. It'll be a winding road. So relax. If you feel like you're like way over here this year, relax. God's going to get, it's a winding story. Just take the foothold of this week and just take a step. So it's thoughtful, it's gradual. And then the third part, she does get to verse 38. It's an unbelievable line that Mary, a teenage girl, says to the angel, may it be to you, may it be to you, Lord, as you have said. I had my wedding plans, I've got my marriage plans, I had plans for how this year is going to unfold. I'm not quite sure I understand it all, not quite sure where this is all going, but willing surrender. Do you see she gets to the willing surrender? And I love how the line in the NIV says, I am the Lord's servant. Did you see that in the text? I am the Lord's servant servant. I think it's a great picture where she has clarity on her identity and her role. I think Mary understood long before Luke 1, she was the Lord's servant. It didn't come to bear until, like Luke 1 was the manifestation of her act of servanthood. Do you know acts of servanthood flow out of someone who understands their posture is one of a servant? Mary knew that her life was not her own. She knew that long before Luke 1. Probably a good testimony to her parents, family, upbringing, environment in which she was raised. She understood that for the most part, it was a surrendered posture. She's the Lord's servant. The I am is the identity statement. Lord's servant is the role statement. And she grasped that the nature of a leader-follower relationship is like, as a follower, you inherit the agenda of the leader, not the other way around. And we sometimes struggle with this as Americans. Sometimes we as Americans want to think, you know, we just band together and get big crowds and all this, and we get to dictate to every, you know, dictate to the leaders how things are. That's not how it works with God. That Jesus is king of all, and he's created a group called his followers of the way, and the followers inherit the agenda of the leader. That's the nature of the leader-follower relationship. So the posture of the relationship is at its core one of submission and surrender and relinquishment. And when there's an interruption, you think it through, you wrestle with it, it's probably gradual, but you eventually come to the place where you just say, okay, Lord, your way, not mine. I surrender. And think about now for Mary. Years later, she'll hear Jesus when he's grown up. Can you picture like how Mary would sit in on Jesus' teachings? That had to be interesting. 
as a mother, she would hear Jesus say this in verse Luke 9, 24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. <laughs> Do you think Mary might, I bet she said amen to that one. Because let's not lose sight, church, of all that Mary's place of surrender cost her. Let's don't skip over this. It's a very costly point of willing surrender here. In her culture at that time, for her to say okay to be an unwed, pregnant teenage mother meant she's the talk of the whole town, and it's not a good conversation because they were ostracized in ways because everyone would have just assumed she's sleeping around, especially when they talked to Joseph and found out Joseph's not sleeping with her. So first of all, they thought they were probably having intimacy before marriage. That was one checkbox they were, she was going to get tossed under, and they find out, well, it wasn't him, and now she's just sleeping around. So her reputation is just, she knows, she's like, boy, this is going to get, it's going to be tough. And then how about this? How about Mary getting to the point where she actually like feels the weight of like raising God's son? Now, parents, I know all of you think your kids are the greatest, right? We all think our kids are the greatest. That's part of being a parent. But Mary has the legitimate claim. Mary has the legitimate statement, like when she says to the people who would say, my child is the greatest, he's king of all, Lord and Savior of the world, that's Jesus. Now, as great as your kids are, you don't have that, okay? Feel the weight of that, moms especially listening. Do you feel the weight if you're Mary, you're teenage, you're, you're unwed, you don't know what's going to happen with Joseph, you hope Joseph will kind of get on board with it? She doesn't know. She could be a single mom in this story at this point, and she knows her reputation's going to be a mess, and then she's like, God's like saying, I got to help raise the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. Do you feel that? Talk about intimidation. I mean, as a parent, when you're driving home for any first-time parent, you feel like, what in the world? I feel like there should be something illegal that you could just, like, take a baby home. I remember pulling away from the St. Vincent Life Center when Lily was first born, and I go, you mean they just let you go home with this? Like, I didn't have to, like, take a test. I didn't have to, like, go through an interview. That is crazy. This nurse came down and just put Lily in the car seat, said, hey, look, and make sure the car seat's good. I looked. And she said, have a nice day. And she shut the door. I thought, are you kidding me? I turned to Kendra and said, now what do we do? And every, every parent, right, we've had, you've had that, right? And then it was the slowest drive in the history of drives when you've got your firstborn in the backseat. Oh, I never drive the speed limit until you have your firstborn in the backseat. I don't stop at the white lines at the stoplights until she's in the I'm like... It's crazy. But ratchet that up several notches ago. The Messiah, the Son of God, he's in the car seat. And you're a single mom at this point in the driver's seat. Now, parents, feel the weight of this as well. How about this statement? It's always a challenge in parenting kids when your kids are like, they always seem to be like a step or two ahead of you in some discussions. You with me, mom and dad? Like you're trying to parent, you're trying to guide and direct, and you find they're just all you're you're playing catch up sometimes on the parenting cycle. How about Mary trying to parent Jesus through developmental stuff? Talk about the kid who's always a step or two ahead. Can you picture him? Like he's really good at having negotiation. 
Some of you have kings and queen negotiators in your house, right? Master negotiator. Jesus, try reasoning that out. And then perhaps the weightiest of all, how about Mary knowing as her child grew, she knew the end of the story. Moms, dads, can you feel this weight? Mary, in her own gradual and progressive way, as the Lord continued to help her grasp what's going on here, and as Jesus kept growing, and imagine the patience she had to exercise when, no doubt Mary's thinking probably when he's 15, 16, 17, maybe 18, it's going to be go time for, hey, go do your Messiah stuff, right? And it's not 18, it's not 25, it's not until Jesus turns 30. Can you imagine like all the time, I just picture all the visits to the woodshed Mary had to go see Joseph. You know, Joseph and Jesus probably just making footstools and wood benches in the carpenter shop because that's what Joseph was, a carpenter. And Jesus is out there sanding on wood blocks. And you're like, Mary's probably running out there. Going, Did you hear the mess that's going on the other side of town? Did you hear what the Romans are doing to those children? Jesus, it's time to do something. Anybody feel that? And Jesus Mary would go back to the house. I just picture how many, how many restless nights did Mary have imagining when that day would come, when the soldiers would arrest her son. And she knew because Roman crucifixion was so public at that time. It was, so, uh, it was happening all the time. It was, and the flogging, she would know they would flog him. And she would know how bloody that would be. And then she would know like, what the brutality of the crucifixion. Can you imagine Mary raising this child, parenting this boy, knowing that the end point was she's going to be an eyewitness to his public execution? That's willing surrender. She said, but Lord, may it be to me as you have said. And here we are, 2,000 plus years removed, and we're still discussing the power of her one act of surrender. Church, do you know? You know the power, the ripple effect of one act of surrender. One moment where the Lord taps and he keeps tapping and you get to the point, you think it through, you ask questions, you wrestle it, it's gradual, you take two steps forward, one back, and then you get to the point, you get to verse 38 and you say, okay, Lord, May it be to me as you have said. And the power, the ripple effect of that one moment. I close with this. Here's a picture of David and Sve Flood. They were newly married in Stockholm, Sweden in 1921. As newlyweds, followers of Jesus, they sensed a burden to serve God. It felt like God was speaking to them about offering their lives up to be missionaries in the world. And through a sequence of events, they find themselves being appointed and sent by a church in Stockholm, Sweden, to an unreached people groups in the Congo in 1920s. So David and Svei Flood, as newlyweds, head to the Congo. They start ministering to a village that's very hostile and resistant to the point where basically they couldn't have any contact with the villagers, and they began to pray and wrestle with, Lord, why have you sent us here? These people don't even want us here. We can't even have any really interactions with them. So what is this all about? And yet each morning, 
there was a five-year-old boy who would come and deliver eggs to their back door. And Svei Flood said, well, the little boy from the village, she thought, well, Lord, the only contact point I have for this group of people is this five-year-old boy who delivers eggs to my back door every day. So she started talking to him about Jesus. That was it. He'd come each day with a fresh basket of eggs. She talked to him about Jesus. Eggs, Jesus. Eggs, Jesus. Eventually, David and Svei, they conceive, have their first child. Through the pregnancy, Svei is struggling with malaria, which is very common back then in that setting in the world. And she gives birth to a daughter named Ana. Three days after Ana is born, Svei dies. She doesn't survive the pregnancy. So David is now 27 years old. He's a single dad with a newborn daughter named Ana living in the Congo around a very hostile and resistant people group. And David kind of emotionally implodes. He just shuts down. It gets to the point where he has to give his newborn daughter, Ana, to another missionary family who's serving on the field with him, the Ericsons. And David books a flight and goes back to Stockholm, Sweden, to try to figure out how to get his life back together. And so here's a newborn, Ana, being raised by a missionary family in the Congo named the Ericsons. The Ericsons take her in as their own. Ana's now about two years old. For the first couple of years, they just try to acclimate as a family, continue to be reaching out to this village. The villagers become very frustrated about their presence, so they poisoned Mr. and Mrs. Erickson, and both of them die. So now Ana is two years old in the Congo. Her dad is in Stockholm, Sweden. Her adopted parents are both dead, and she's an orphan in the Congo. One other missionary families in the area hears about Ana. The Bergs, the Berg family takes Ana in at two years old and begins to raise her as their own. They change her name to Aggie. Here's a picture of Aggie as she begins to grow up. So Ana, eventually her name's changed to Aggie. The Bergs decide it would be best for her development at a certain place to get back to the States to help her with schooling. So they come back, they're rooted in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area, and eventually Aggie Flood enrolls at North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She meets her husband, and they start serving Jesus' church, kind of carrying on the story, and no contact with her dad. As she got a little bit older and she began to understand the context of her full story, she had a burden to reconnect um, kind of with her family of origin and specifically her mom's grave. So here's a picture. Ana goes back and visits her mom's grave because David had created a little grave site. It was up on a hill on side of the village and Ana goes and she just is trying to kind of bring some closure and context to her upbringing. And while she's there, she senses a burden from the Lord to reach out and try to find her dad. Now, this is back in the 40s and 50s where you don't have, like, all the internet. You can't just, like, you know, search and all. I mean, it's, it's a lot of trying to figure it out when you're on the other side of the world. So it took her several months to find out where he was. He was still living in an apartment, kind of a run-down shack of a place, third-floor apartment in Stockholm, Sweden. And she finds out that basically he's lived as a recluse for 40-plus years. He turned to alcohol and just literally drank himself to the point where the word she got was he's on his deathbed because his liver is failing. He's just been an alcoholic for so many years. So she senses a burden from the Lord to get a ticket. She goes. She finds the apartment. She finds the actual unit. She knocks on the door and she says through the door, Dad, it's Ana. 
And he said when he heard those words, they haven't seen or spoken. She was an infant, just a few weeks old when he left. No contacts at 40 plus years. And he just bursts into tears and he says to her, the first words out of his mouth were, I never meant to give you away. Imagine the emotion in the apartment there. They hug, they cry. Obviously, Ana's got a lot of questions and well, Aggie's sitting there, and she senses, like, God's not only part of reconciling their relationship, but she realizes while she's there, like, I think my dad's going to die soon. And so she becomes a conduit where David rededicates himself to Christ and kind of finds a fresh place of grace and healing and love from the Lord that's just not been there. He's been in darkness for decades from all that happened. And so they spend some time together, and David has this kind of spiritual renewal. Aggie goes back. To the States, and while she's on the flight home is when David, her dad, takes her last breath, and he dies. Five years from that point, five years later, Aggie and her husband are in London at a missions conference. On the stage of the missions conference is a young man from the Congo, giving his testimony, telling his story. Obviously, Aggie is sitting in the audience. She perks up quite, right? And so as soon as this session's over, she makes her way down front to meet this gentleman from the Congo. And she starts asking him some questions. She asks him to tell a little bit more of his story. And here's what he says to her, not knowing who she is. He says to her, here's a quote, Every day I would go to Sfei Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. And she would tell me about Jesus. I don't know that she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me. Shortly after I accepted Christ, Sfei died and her husband left. They had a baby girl, Ana. I've always wondered what happened to her. Here's a picture of him. There's a picture. Dave, can you go back to the photo? There's a picture of Jean Rugita de Gora. That's a five-year-old boy who was bringing eggs to the back of Sve Flood's home. And Ana says to him, I am that girl. And the eyewitnesses to the scene, it said it was like two siblings who were separated at birth. They just fell into each other's arms and just began to weep together and weep together. And obviously had lots of conversation together. And one point of the dialogue, here's what Jean Rugita de Gora says to Ana, just a few months ago, he says to her, I placed flowers on your mother's grave on behalf of the hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers in Congo. Thank you for letting your mother die so that so many of us could live. Church, you never know the power of one act of surrender. The ripple effect of just, may it be to me, Lord, as you have said. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Have the team come on up. Let's take a couple of minutes here and uh, where Christmas week 2020 finds you, where's the spirit tapping on the heart these days and saying, hey, it's an act of surrender. I'm tapping. Where's that contact point of surrender right now? 
For some listening, either in this room or online, for some it might be, you know, you've known all about the Christmas story, but maybe today it's, uh, it's time to get personal. And maybe today your one act of surrender is you're going to yield your heart to Christ for the first time and say, Jesus, save me. Come into my life and forgive me. Lead me. I've known about you, but now it's time to know you. So maybe that's the point. You just say, Jesus, save me. I know you're the son of God. I know you died on a cross and rose from the dead. I just bring to you the whole of my life. And I say, may it be to me as you have said. I surrender. I surrender. Maybe you've been wrestling. Maybe you've been pushing away. Maybe you've been... Just surrender. Or maybe others... This morning, the contact point of surrender is what you might call a rededication or a a recommitment or perhaps a returning. Maybe you know you've wandered and strayed, maybe gotten distracted. Maybe this year's just been so hard in so many ways that you've just kind of drifted away. And you can decide right now, thoughtfully and gradually, just join Mary joins Faye Flood, join Ana, and say, may it be to me, as you have said, I surrender. I'm coming back to you, Lord. Or maybe there's just something very specific going on. You're working through some circumstances, some decisions. You've received some news, perhaps about your health, or your job, or your family, or you just, you're confused and you're wrestling with it. And maybe this morning, Jesus comes and just taps, taps on the heart again, just says, loosen the grip, relinquish control, and surrender. Just say right now in your heart, yes to Jesus. Whatever that yes, just say yes. And open up your hands and open up your heart. We never know the ripple effect of this one act of surrender. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see what's the, what's the little boy with the basket of eggs at our back door. What's that for us right now? Forgive us when we overlook that. Give us the gift of surrender to simply do what we know and the strength that we have. And thank you that you would take a young teenage girl in Bethlehem and you would weave together a story where here we sit worshiping the light of the world that came through her womb. So God, we worship you, we love you, we trust you. We willingly offer our lives to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.